everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Sierra and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey, everybody. Um, Wayne and Mark and Daniel here. Areeb is not with us today, and Sierra is also on vacation this week. So you've got Mark and I to be hosts for Daniel. And many of you are probably watching this is a replay uh, down the road, but uh, we always have fun with our live audience. So I'll start out by just saying that if you get a question at any time, throw it in. Just, just throw it out at, at Daniel and myself. And Daniel, you don't have to worry about looking for them. Mark will be doing that. And uh, you and I can just have a nice chat. And, and then you're going to give a, a little bit of an interview, uh, excuse me, a presentation also. So uh, we were talking about yeah. sports a little bit. Um, it's a good segue. And uh, give us a five-minute just description of your life from kind of birth to this point, where you're at in the world, and just a little bit about kind of where you, what got you to where you're at today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me see. I hate to do this. Let me step up for just once. I got to turn off the kids monitor because they're going to be in the background if I don't turn it off. Okay. I forgot I had it, had it in my library here during their nap today. There we go. Anyways. Yeah. So I just, I just gave a, uh, a podcast about my story and it took one and a half hours. So, um, I had the tendency to, yeah. <laughs> It's extensive and there's some complexities and things and, and what I'll do here in five minutes, I'll just try to zoom out at, at 30,000 feet looking down and, and give you what I think you guys need to know for this conversation. Um, lo long story short, I was a child of, of, of uh, you know, four. We grew up in uh, northeast Ohio on about 30 acres. All of our neighbors had about an eighth of an acre. We were that anomaly family of homeschooled rugrats, if you will, that uh, ran around outside half naked and uh, literally half naked. I think most of my childhood photo album is me naked and uh, covered in dirt. So we were, I, I think that's a blessed childhood. Um, but it, it was unique. It was unique. And um, long story short, grew up, uh, always had a fascination and love for animals in the wild and hunting and, 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 and agriculture or farming in general. Never really had a context to express that, 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 that joy, if you will. Um, went into high school sports, was, was pretty good at it. National champion wrestler, uh, top recruit nation in the nation for D1 uh, football. I was a bit of linebacker, very good at it. And um, I ended up my senior year in high school, um, I, I was diagnosed with at the time was um, a degenerative genetic disease of my uh, hips and shoulder. So all of the, the, the joints in my body that are a ball and socket, right? So you have this ball, you have this socket and, and they twist and they go just like your shoulders or your hips. Uh, I was diagnosed with this random and, and really not medically understood at the time, uh, disease where they just thought that my, my, it, my femoral head, if you will, so the, the ball on top of my leg that fits into the hip joint was malformed at birth. That, that's what they thought at the time. And I've kind of lost track over the years with this medical research. It was new at the time, and I bet there's even more research done on it today. Um, seems like 
modern medicine is, is trying to understand a lot of anomalies. Um, and I think they're doing a pretty good job at it. But point is, my career in, in sports ended. Um, it, it was an emotional time for me uh, because it wasn't sports related. This was something that they believe I was born with. And at the height of my high school career, just after winning the national championship and being one of the literally the top recruits, uh, I really could have gone to most all Division One schools that I wanted to play at. Um, you know, I, I got a phone call. I'll never forget this from Northwestern. It was the head football coach of Northwestern after they learned about my 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 disease, if you will. And he uh, was really nice and kind. And he just said, we're not interested anymore. I mean, like whatever we said in the past, you know, don't no hard feelings. But, you know, we can't take you if you can't walk. And at the time, it was unclear if walking would even be in my future. I mean, it was it was a severe, severe disease that was deteriorating my bone structure. And so I, uh, I, I say this to folks, it was, um, it was Valentine's Day, um, the spring of my senior year, and I was laying in bed after all these surgeries and complications that that followed the initial diagnosis. And uh, I was laying in bed all by myself, Valentine's Day, and, I, and a coach called me, or it was a number, and I picked it up and ended up being a college football coach of a division one, or I'm sorry, a division three school that was like 0 and 10 for the last decade. I'm talking like bottom of the barrel division one or division three. And and by the way, you know, I think back to this moment as one of the pivotal moments in my life, it was very important, very important phone call. And I pick up and, and the gentleman on the other line was like, oh, you're the, you're the first person to pick up. You must not have a girlfriend. And I wanted to reply like, oh, you don't understand. I don't have a life. I mean, I'm, I've been laying in bed for months all by myself and I was severely depressed as well. And I ended up going to that school, by the way. That that phone call literally was the instigation for me going to that school. <laughs> and uh, I didn't play sports there. Um, but my life pivoted. And, and what we didn't know was that these complications, these genetic illnesses, were just the, the tip of the iceberg, if you will, to use that saying. There was a whole host of other contributing factors and also tangent realities to this disease that we didn't know at the time was coming. But, oh, my God, did they come. Uh, for the next about five years, um, my life ebbed and flowed. I mean, I would I would be, um, you know, living life. And in a span of 30 days, I would lose 80 to 100 pounds just uh, out of nowhere for no reason that we ever determined. And I would just wither away, just absolutely wither away and dropped out of college, moved in with my parents, got married. My wife was supporting us. She was working full time, uh, traveled all around the country um, doing tests and diagnosis and and work and procedures and I mean I, we lived in hospitals for months and months and months and just trying to figure out why my body was undergoing the severe degenerative cycle right like the normative uh, normative uh, human health or function doesn't lose 100 pounds in, in 30 days right I mean it's it, it was it, it was serious anyways I'm saying too much because I'm trying to stay high level and I keep getting bogged down. But the idea being this one spring day, um, my wife was working full time. We were living with my parents. As I said, I was sitting on the back porch and a friend of mine, a, my godfather, actually a farmer, a local farmer, um, um, gave me Joel Salatin's book, Folks, This Ain't Normal. Not for any other purpose than he just thought it was a good book. And so um I was sitting there reading it was spring. I had a little fire in the chimney, this little contained fireplace in the back patio of my family home, all by myself reading Folks This Ain't Normal by Salatin and, and loving it. But, you know, at a distance, it, it was still somewhat foreign to me. And my mom, she walked out the, the sliding glass door. I'll never forget this moment. 
And um, I, I kid you not, literally there was a tear in her eye and a smirk on her face. And I always tell people pain and joy, joy and pain mixed in this complex reality that is life. And she looked at me and she said, Daniel, we've tried everything. And we've literally traveled the country. You spent years literally living inside hospitals. Um, but the only thing we haven't tried is chicken. And I dropped the book and I started to laugh because it sounds funny and it sounds ironic today. But she goes, no, 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 you don't understand. Dana. What, what, I'm, what I'm saying is let's change your lifestyle and let's change your diet and, and we'll see what happens. And uh, that, that day without consulting my wife, which is still a joke between my wife and I, who now farm full time on 450 acres in the middle of nowhere, central Virginia, uh, we bought 100 uh, black, black Australorp chickens from Murray Hatchery. They arrived the next week. We had no idea what we're doing didn't know that there's a thing called a chicken tractor or that chickens can even be free range or not free range. We literally knew nothing. Um, but it was my mom's idea that this whole time we had been passively trying to find answers, right? Trying to find people to tell us what is wrong. And, and maybe what we needed to do was, was turn that passivity into activity, right? To transform the understanding of your personal health as something that you control. Not in a, in, a, in, a, in a final sense. Obviously, we don't have full controls over our bodies because we're all interconnected beings in a world that works interconnectedly and interdependently. Uh, but in some sense, we do. we do. We do have control of what we eat, what we think, how we live, the emotions that we carry and, and our mental state and spiritual state. And, um, and what she was saying in this moment was, let, let, let's try to take hold of your life and, and see where it goes. And so we bought 100 chickens, like I said. We built a, uh, a little market garden, found out we do not like gardening. Uh, we were the worst market gardeners in the history of market gardening. Um, the weeds would come and I would just get stressed and run away. And that's not exactly what you need to do to produce a lot of, you know, veggies and, and such. And uh, bringing this all full circle to my godfather, uh, who's now, I mean, it's just a dear, dear mentor and friend of mine. Uh, he ran about a 200 head Irish Dexter grass-fed, grass-finished operation in Northeast Ohio. And he said, Daniel, come, come work with me. Come just spend some hours on the farm once a week and, and start to understand cattle and, and then just breathe the fresh air and step in manure patties and I'll pay you in livers and hearts and spleens and kidneys and bones and I'll just pay you in health, right? Just participate in the, in the activity. And, and to his credit, I could barely walk at this point. I mean, I literally weighed 140, 145 pounds to put that in context, I, my football weight was about 250 pounds. So I had just seriously lost fat and muscle mass. And I was not, um, I was not helpful. I, I guarantee you now that I own a farm and, and have people that work with us in working cattle, guarantee I was a hindrance. Uh, I slowed things down and it was just out of the peace and joy of his heart that uh, he showed me the reins and I fell in love with it. And now about 10 years later, um, as we'll get into, my wife and I run a pretty sophisticated farm here. Health has returned. Um, there's more into my health journey that we can get into uh, that deals more with dieting and the things that we learned. But I haven't had an episode in about five years. Um, episode meaning that I haven't gone through a degenerative event. Um, and we're fully help, hap, healthy, and, or healthy and happy and, and, um, and, and living what we believe to be a very true and nourishing life. So. Wow. The, um, the disease, did it ever get more specifically identified or is it still somewhat unknown? Um, no, it, it, it never did. In, in, in transparency, in, in honesty, about four years ago, maybe four and a half, we stopped trying to identify it. 
what we found was the life that we are living and the foods that we are eating and and um and all of that coming together really provided the solvent and uh you know we have three kids and they're all happy and healthy they don't carry the disease and so for some reason it's just me and so we decided that hey this is a good life let's stop trying to find the solutions and move on um i i will say that for about a year we were about we were laughed out of hospitals they didn't believe that it even existed um the head gi doc at the cleveland clinic i'll never forget literally laughed me out of his office like he walked out mid-appointment laughing like i'm not i'm not uh i'm not overstating the thing he literally just walked out of the the office space laughing just saying like you know you should be eating gluten this is hilarious just move on and 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 uh that was a little depressing but uh no it was it, it was a journey for sure is it, is it a variety some variety of an autoimmune situation and the reason i ask is that i have something like that my onset was only not even a year ago december 19th of last year mm. and i'm 68 years old so it, it, it happened very late in life and and my symptoms were much more benign than yours but joint pain pretty seriously mm. um, and in my case it's small joints rather than bigger joints um fingers wow. toes and so on and you know tolerable no big deal but i've had number of physicians that have been trying to diagnose this and they, all they say is there's 63 known autoimmune diseases and who knows how many others we don't even know what they are. And you appear to have one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, it's, it's definitely an autoimmune disease that somehow, um, you know, tags itself onto a bone malformation sort of thing of, of, you know, whatever that means. I'm not a doctor. And so I have no idea, but, uh, what, what I know is that, um, environment matters terrain matters lifestyle matters food matters right these are all interconnected holes that i think i think a lot of scientists and, and, and medical practitioners today are starting to understand this right especially in the naturopathic and uh more natural um, medicines out there but at the time i, I it's interesting at the, at, at the beginning of my health issues um you know like gluten-free wasn't even a thing like I, it, it sounds like I'm like talk like when your generation talks about like cell phones or the internet or something, because wow. I'm obviously much much younger. But like it, that's that's what we say. Like gluten free wasn't a wasn't a thing. It literally yeah. didn't exist. There were no shelves in the grocery store that said gluten free. Um, I mean like there's a, there's there's uh I mean I'm not saying that gluten is good or gluten is bad here. I think it's it's up to you, your context, and, and what you're trying to do with your health. Uh, and also the health that you've been given genetically and epigenetically. Um, but like a lot is changing and a lot is changing in a good way, I think. So let's skip a little bit here and, um, um, go to the name you mentioned. So did, did you get beyond just reading about Joel and, uh, get to know him? Cause obviously now, at least if you're in Virginia, you're not too far from him, Northeast Ohio. By the way, I, I have an office in Cincinnati and, and I've spent a lot of time, more time in Northeast Ohio than even in, down in the South. So I know the area pretty well. Um, but, um, how, how did you, did you gain a little bit more of a relationship with Joel? And obviously you have gained relationships with Alan Savory and with Rodale and others, all, all of which are amazing. I'm just curious about Joel. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Joel, Joel has been a, a great partner in, in our Central Virginia, Virginia movement here. A- absolutely. Absolutely. He, uh, he, he provided a good blurb for our recent book, which was a blessing. Um, we've met multiple times on, on, on his farm polyface to discuss some, uh, entities or organizations or movements, uh, that we're building ourselves. And, uh, he's been a real blessing for us. Absolutely. Yeah. How about a sort of a less well-known name, but very closely associated with, with Joel for a number of reasons. And I think even closer to you, probably location-wise, Jordan Green. You know Jordan mm. and his family? I do. I do. Let, as, as funny as it sounds, probably less well as I know Joel. Um, Jordan is – I bet he's equidistant to us, between us and Polyface uh, Us and, and JL Green okay. uh, Farm. Um, but, you know, distantly. Yeah, he's a great guy. Well, great you know, guy. He, the reason that, that I said it's a close is that he married – Joel's daughter, so he's a right. balance, you know. And he was, he was, he did his internship initially after the Marine Corps at Joel's. Right. Became he's Daniel's age, thousand, and you know, they became best of friends, and then obviously met the daughter in that process. And so, you know, right. the relationship there. But he runs a right. very, you know, financially lifestyle, all the different success metrics you could want to measure um, farming operation with, um, you know, pastured animals. So, you know, naturally right. pastured animals. Um, probably maybe hogs more than anything. And, and you'd enjoy seeing this farm if you haven't been there. And, and I know I got, yeah. I got a chance to spend a week or so with him. We've, we've done some things collaboratively and he's been a, a real good friend of, of our group, the Eat Group here. So, um, good, good guy. Cool, good family cool. man. We enjoy it. So now let's fast yeah. forward and tell us, tell us how, as you moved into the farming yourself, you didn't just go from being at your parents' place to a 450 acre farm. Um, must have been some steps there. And, and then, and how did you develop the relationship with Savory? And, and then I don't want to, I don't want to jump into your presentation much because it'd be better if we if you wanted to do that now then we could go back and answer questions some more your choice you you sort of tell me oh boy oh boy um i don't know let's 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 dive into some more contextual questions i like this that way when i'm when i'm talking about my thoughts there's some context behind it i'm good with that um yeah so give us a little more yeah what was the transition yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, over a period of time, health started to return, um, started to take up a little bit more of a role in that Northeast Ohio uh, Irish Dexter farm. Um, started to raise, we raised more chickens, kept doing the market garden just because that was our context in terms of topography and also land base. Um, and, and my dad came to me one day and he said, Daniel, I'm getting old. I want to retire. I want to get out of Northeast Ohio, find some land to retire on. And, uh, and I said, well, hey, I want to find some land to, to put a farm on. So let's, let's join these two efforts and find a farm with two houses on it. And so we looked and looked and looked and years passed, um, kept doing exactly what we were doing. And uh, we looked all, I mean, we looked in Colorado, Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia, Southern Ohio. I mean, we really, really looked hard because we wanted land. 
we wanted to be farmable, at least accessibly farmable, meaning that it wasn't just a forest that we were going to select cut and put animals in and, and or, you know, open fields that we we're going to defend. And it needed two houses, one for him, one for me. And um, obviously there's some financial constraints there. A larger acreage of two houses was typically out of our price range. And um, the farm that we, we ended up purchasing uh, was not the farm we ever thought we would purchase. It was about three or four, well, it was about four times what we wanted to pay for a farm. But we were in the area traveling from Ohio to Virginia, uh, looking at other farms, much smaller farms. And the realtor who was showing us around showed us this farm, the one we actually ended up buying years later. I'll, I'll keep telling the story in, in, in a timeline order. And uh, he showed us this farm just for fun, just a couple hours. Um, and we loved it. It made a lot of sense. Loved the farm. A lot of springs, good timber, good pasture land, good civil pasture land, too. Houses. One is a very nice house. One was a degraded house that was kind of falling over, but two houses nonetheless. And we just moved on. We laughed and our hearts were like, oh, what a farm. And our pocketbooks were like, no way. That's four times more than we ever could pay. Long story short, years went by, maybe maybe two, two and a half, three years. Um, my wife and I, we were vacationing, if you will, down at Virginia Beach, uh, April of 26, 2016, I think. And um, the realtor called us and he said, hey, I don't know what you're doing, but you got to come back down to Virginia. And, and we said, why? What, what's going on? And he's like, that farm in, in Nelson County, which is this farm, uh, it's back on the market and it's for sale for, uh, oh, I forget the actual asking price, but it was under what we would want to pay for it anyways. Meaning that if we had, you know, one X to spend, it was 7.75 X. Wow. So it had dropped, you know, by, I don't know what percentage that is, but a lot, you know, 400% or whatever that would be. And uh, so we came down, we pulled in the driveway because uh, we just stopped at Virginia Beach vacation early, drove over the mountain, you know, and, and to visit. And there was a logging operation currently making its home here. It was building a pad for logging and things. And I said, Tom, that was a realtor. Tom, what's going on? Like, I thought, I don't understand what's going on. And he's like, well, the owner got tired of selling it. And so he just sold all the timber, but now they're selling it at the price point that you would want to buy it at. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Okay, so I'm not going to own a single tree in 300-plus acres. That was what the original land deed was, about, I think, 310 acres. And uh, But it was all going to be deforested. I mean, the little red maple that's, you know, four inches in diameter sitting outside my house all the way through the 80-foot, uh, you know, 32, 42-inch diameter white, white pine in the back, everything was going to be taken. And so I called my friend who works at the Virginia Department of Forestry, and I said, hey, listen, what is, what is, what is hardwood – timber price is worth right now what's what's the market look like and he's like daniel i'll be honest with you it's, it's weird we're in the slump nobody wants hardwood right now they're all looking for pulpwood and, and and all sorts of pine species loblolly in particular here on the east coast and uh and i was like okay so like nobody wants hardwood he's like no nobody wants hardwood and so i called my dad back and i said dad do i have an inheritance and he goes yeah you got an inheritance and i was like well can i have it early and and uh and he goes, well, I don't know about the prodigal son sort of relationship. Like, what are you asking? And I was like, well, I'll call you back. So I walked over to the logging crew, long, long, long story short. And I said, okay, what would you take to get off the land? Just stop. Everything you're doing, just stop. Just, just, just vacate the property. What would it cost you? And they thought about it for a couple of weeks. Uh, maybe, maybe a week, week and a half. And they came back and they said $83,000. So I called my dad back and I said, that $83,000, can that be my inheritance? He's like, that's, oh, you, oh, why? And I told him. And, uh, and so we did it. We bought, we bought the farm, paid the logger $83,000, um, saved 
two thirds of the trees, um, you know, for that, some of the trees that loggers wanted regardless and came in still literally, you know, below what we would have been looking for a farm at. And, uh, we moved in, uh, we leased the land to some neighbors who were good regenerative farmers who needed a place for some of their animals for the first year or so. And they ran the place. We just did chickens, got our feet under us, moved down. My wife was pregnant and, uh, we needed to deal with some family things. The house that I'm currently sitting in was leaning over and dilapidated. So we needed to rebuild it. So, you know, we, we worked through that. And then, uh, later 2017, we, we started what is Timshaw. You know, a hundred cow calf pair operation, you know, pigs, chickens, ducks, turkeys, lamb, pigs, and cattle. And then orchards, food forests, and gardens and things. Cool. So, um, now, yeah. so you just, you just, you just transitioned to that. The genesis of the name Timshaw. Yeah. So, um, I stole it from John Steinbeck. As you can see, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a bookworm. I like I like books, and and John Steinbeck's one of my one of my favorite authors. He wrote a book called uh, East of Eden, and in in the book, there's maybe a half a page that is dedicated to the word Timshaw. And uh, and I learned about it there, and and then I talked to my aunt, who you know reads and, and speaks Aramaic and Hebrew, um, and I learned a little bit more about it. But anyways, long 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 story short, Timshaw is a Hebrew word. And uh, it's used in the biblical context between Cain and Abel, where, um, you know, for those of you who don't know the story, Cain kills Abel and, you know, things like that due to inheritance and sacrifice uh, worth and things. But when God responds to Cain and uh, and, and he says the word Timshul, and that's all he says in, in the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew version. And, and, and what that word is translated to English is obviously very improper. Hebrew directly from Hebrew to English is, is, a, is a very hard translation to make. But if it means anything at all, it, it means it's the acceptance of the orator, the orator, in this case, God, the orator is accepting that the subject being Cain has power. And, and he acknowledges that and he accepts it. And he says, but how you use that power is up to you. It's completely up to you. And so you have um, uh, the ability to manage well, I acknowledge that, but it's up to you, right? This is the commercial v. regenerative, unsustainable versus sustainable conversation where we have this ability, right? I mean, we talked putting on my holistic management savory hat. Um, we have the ability to manage systems, very complex systems, very holistically, right? But it changes. You have to change your paradigm. You have to develop a context. You have to understand how to do X, Y, and Z, and then you have to understand that step back. You got to be humble and all of that. Um, and that, that's what Timshul is. Boiled down, what it means is thou mayest, if you were to, to directly translate it, which is improper, but good enough. It, it's the acknowledgement that the human species, we have the ability to create positive or negative change. We live in a world, in a climate, in a society, in, in an economic system that, in my opinion, has accepted the challenge and went the wrong way. Right. Timshul is the idea that we can accept this challenge and go the right way. There is hope. My children can have air to breathe 30 to 40 to 50 years from now. We don't have to, as Elon Musk says, spend half of our fortunes developing, you know, a land base on Mars. We, we still have time. Right. And so that's that's what Timshul is. It's the understanding that the human soul has the power to come into these ecosystems, to be co-creators in the world of regenerative, regenerative agriculture, or just regenerative living systems in, in general. Very cool. Um, so um, you tell me, by the way, because we try to be fairly um, 
restricted our hour sort of time frames for, for this. You tell me when we get to the point where you should probably move it into your presentation. We'll, we'll cool. Other questions. By the way, you are more than welcome to come back with us at other times, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. So you don't have to worry about getting everything in here now. But um, cool. So we're I think we have Abby Smith next week also, and in the past we've had several other people that have um, have Alan relationships, and, and Alan and I know each other. I wouldn't say that we're friends, but so let's go to that. Um, how did you create the, the the relationship with Savory versus there's you know lots of other groups that you could have connected with that are out there, kind of in holistic and regenerative and so on setting. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so so Tim Schull, um a little part of my story that I skipped over because it's not altogether important. Tim Schull used to be a, a, a permaculture farm, and and we're still heavily invested in permaculture. That that was what um, what the the first form of 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 um, you know hippie agriculture or sustainable agriculture that has evolved into regenerative agriculture, at least partially. Uh, that I got into was permaculture. So I'm a certified permaculture designer. I teach PDCs and things. Um, I, I don't love that space. And, and to be honest with you, I'll, 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 I'll tell you why. When, when people would come out to our farm to get a permaculture tour and right, and we have, now we have a, over 400 acres. We keep buying up the lands around us. Um, but they would come onto this farm, right? And there's hundreds of cattle in a field. And, you know, we got 50 pigs born the other day and, there's just a lot happening, right? And that's just your average Tuesday. Um, and they would say, well, where's the permaculture? And I would say, well, th this, this, is, this is permaculture. And they were like, well, where's your swales? And I was like, oh, there's no swales. Where's your food forest? Oh, they're at the back of my house. And they would be disappointed and they would leave. And so we, we just transitioned out of that name. It used to be Tim Schill Permaculture. Now it's Tim Schill Wildland. The Wildland, I'll get to more in my presentation. I think it'll make a little bit more sense. But anyways, we, we were teaching at this point and we started to do land designs and, and consulting type work. And so we already had those gears moving and uh, we learned about holistic management, started to manage our landscape holistically, literally using Savory's tools or, or planning procedures, I should say, holistic plan grazing, ecological monitoring and, and, and such. And uh, one day my wife and I were talking a couple of years ago and she goes, Daniel, it seems like everybody in the Savory community are just really cool people. Like, I guarantee you, Wayne, and everybody else listening to this, regardless if it's live or on a replay, you're going to love listening to Abby Smith talk much more than myself. And I, I don't say that because I'm humble, although it's true. Um, it is also just the truth in and of itself. Everybody who's surrounded within the umbrella of faith, I mean, they're just unbelievable people. Everybody I've ever met from from this group, from this community are just have unbelievable hearts and passions and drives and, and the humility. and you know, I, I tell this to some folks, and I'm kind of on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's a healthy one. Local food, okay, is a fine thing. I believe in local food, and I have some very serious opinions about the future of the human species being via local food. But what local food has done, I think, accidentally is force local farmers to compete, right? It, it, it's in some way a race to the bottom, at least mentally. I don't think it is physically. As I'm saying, I really do believe the future is local. But the point is we started to compete with each other. And, um, you know, my farm, my hat has my logo on it. Your hat is your logo on it. Don't ever let me wear your hat. I mean, my chicken is better than your chicken, although it's the same chicken and we're neighbors. 
uh, savory, what we found is doesn't have that same sort of competitive spirit. Um, it, it's a collaborative community. It's a decentralized nodal network, if you will. That's what they say it is. And it's true. It's decentralized and it's nodal, uh, meaning that the, all the power isn't located in any one space. And we all know that when you have Alan Savory on speed dial and you have Alan Savory on speed dial, I, I don't need to buff my chest up to you and say, I'm this unbelievable regenerative ag guy. Look at what I'm doing. Right. It, we, we gather underneath Savory and therefore, hey, let's, let's collaborate. Let's have a community. Um, and that's a huge, huge side note. But anyway, the point is my wife said, Daniel, everybody in Savory seems really awesome. And so um, we reached out, tried to become an accredited professional, which is really the first step in any sort of accreditation process within the Savory's, uh, Savory Institute's platform. Started to going through that and realized that we really wanted to become a hub. So we started to reach out, went through about an 18-month um, application process, which if you're on this call and you think that you want to be a hub with Savory, um, do it. It's unbelievable. But like, wow, is that 18 months of, of my life? Um, it, it's strict. It's rigorous. And, and, and the reason is so that the hubs still have not power, but, um, they have sway. They have importance. Uh, they've, they've gone through, it's kind of like probably a bad analogy or comparison, but like Navy SEALs, right? When you look at a Navy SEAL, say, okay, you've been through some things. I'm not saying that savory is like the Navy SEALs, but what I am saying is that, you know, these hubs have put in serious time, serious effort and serious capital to doing what they're doing. And so it is a very rigorous process. And so we went through that, that process. And to be honest with you, I never thought they would, that they would even accept our application. Um, it was a joke between my wife and I when they were going to tell us just to stop. They stopped the application, stop, <laughs> um, stop the candidacy process. And, and they never did. And, and we just kept scaling through it. And now we're a hub. Um, nothing really to note there to waste time on. Um, but that, that was uh, 2018, I believe. I think it was 2018. So that, that's, so, that's the story. Uh, I don't know. Do you want any tangent in there? No, that was great. That helped. That was super. By the way, this is a Acres USA hat. So um, I've had the pleasure of being able to speak a couple times at Acres and know the folks there. And obviously they're close. They're located. They are. And Mark Shepard was previously my partner, and, and for a couple of years we did consulting together all over. And Mark's obviously one of their more um, profitable authors from from his book that he's done. So, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, let's let's transition into your presentation because I don't want to run out of time for it, and we can go to other uh, answered questions. And are you going to go through the slides? Is Mark going to hand them for you, or how are we going to do that? Yeah. Um, I'll I got them locally up. here. I can, I can share. I think. Mark, do I have that ability to share? Right. I'll have to switch to you, and then you can just share your screen. Um. Right now you're the presenter. Um. Okay. So do you see the pop up on your screen that says? I do. Okay, so you should be good to go. Let me see. How do I? Do you see the uh, the slide there? Uh, hasn't come up yet. All right, there it is. Now it is. Yep, it's there. We got it. It's there. Yep. Let's see, I have some some notes. Do you know? Sorry for the 
technical difficulties. Do you know, I got some notes in the back end of the PowerPoint. How do I? You can put them right up next to them in PowerPoint. I'm not sure if I remember how exactly you do that. Let me see, slideshow. I always have some notes to guide me through so it's not jumbled. Uh, let me see, presenter view. Yeah, you should be able to have it to where you can see the notes and uh, right. on the screen. Huh. Why can't? Let's see. I'm looking at it. My Great Pyrenees is out on a deck in front of my house in front of me here. He's trying to fend off a bunch of magpies that are trying to steal his dinner. Yeah, here, let me, let me, uh, I can plug into this external monitor and that would make it seamless. So did, did your dad and other parts of the family end up moving onto the property? So you guys, are you guys all now on the same, same area? That's right. That's right. Um, let me see what's going to happen. So PowerPoint view. Nope. Hold on. PowerPoint. Okay. I think that makes sense. So you can see the front slide. You see the big. Yep. Yep. Cool. Just bring my chair over. So you see the front. You see what you want to see. Cool. Yep. Cool. Okay. Let's see. And then Wayne or Mark, just yell at me if the slide is behind where you think it should be. Sometimes it delays. Just yell. I'll respond. We'll do it. We'll do it. All right. Cool. Okay. So my, my focus, I think this is going to be about 20 minutes, uh, is, is to discuss the, the philosophies of regeneration. Um, and, and, and why we believe that wildness and relationship wildness and relationship are the needed components in building a more healthy and resilient future. So before we begin, we really believe that context is important, right? Who is doing what, where, and for what purpose? We always say to do is good, to do for the good is best, right? And the difference there is clear, it, it, is, it is context. Um, you know, action outside of context is just noise. Action within context is hope. And, and, and I've been known to say, and I think this is very true, but regeneration is about hope and it, it is not about anything else. Right. And so therefore we must start with some context. We've gotten into this a little bit. 
but this is Timshaw Wildland. This is just a mosaic of some pictures from, from, from our farm or wildland land base um, that, that my wife and I, we own, we operate, um, and we, we love every second of it. But Timshaw Wildland is a 400-acre regenerative process-led and emergent conservation wildland in central Virginia that, that is focused, if it's focused on anything, on regenerating our relationship to nature so that we can then regenerate the soils. So we start with the soul, right? We start with the relationships that surround the souls of community. And then and only then with that foundation set, we progress to the soils. Soil health is, in our opinion, a byproduct of healthy community function. Soil health is a byproduct of community function, right? And so we start at the community. That, that's what the wildland is all about. That is what our context is. And so our focus is on the soul, and we progress to the soil. So I'm on slide two. Tell me if it doesn't pop up. Um, but if you guys get to know me or if you're listening to this and you've heard me talk or you know me personally, you'll know I'm a deeply poetic and philosophical uh, guy. If you see my book or you've read my book, Wild Like Flowers, The Restoration of Relationship Through Regeneration, um, it, it, it's pretty much poetry written in a prose-like form, if, 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 if you will. Um, and so what I wanted to do here before we go any more, I want to frame a moment. I think this is very, very important, maybe as important as setting a context. But um, one, one of the first books on agriculture, one of the first books I said earlier, the first, first book was Folk to Say Normal by Salatin. But one of the first books on agriculture that was given to me in the beginning of my regenerative journey was Masanobu Fukuoka's One Straw Revolution. I think it's a brilliant book. Uh, I, in fact, I'll put it in the top books that I've ever read. Um, it is a brilliant work of art, um, but it's also a surprising work. So after in the beginning of the book, towards the beginning of the book, uh, after a dialogue um, about re returning humanity, its society, its culture, and therefore its agriculture towards what Fukuoka calls the great way, which is just the pathway where spiritual awareness and, and physical nourishment meet and form a very abundant whole, Fukuoka does what, when I was reading this, I did not expect. He pauses and he argues for poetry. Fukuoka contends that agriculture in this moment is in a bad way, not because of its chemical dependence, you know, extreme erosion or, or carbon emittance. It's not bad because it's tilling versus, I mean, he doesn't even go there. He, he says it's not in a bad way because it has forgone honor. Right, the idea of controlling by force and manipulation and commodification of the natural world, he doesn't even go there. Right, but rather where he goes, he states that agriculture is in a bad way because there is no time for a farmer to write poetry. Poetry, right? Like what a, what a strange, strange thing to say. I think Fukuoka is known to say some strange things, but this has to be its strangest. Um, you know, modern agriculture is in a bad way for many reasons, but I wouldn't have put poetry or the ability or leisure of a farmer to write or read poetry as, as one of the ones at the top. Um, in Wildlife Flowers, I say poetry may be the marvel masked in the dailiness of the mundane, but I think it's apt to question what does marvelousness or dailiness have to do with agriculture, right? That is a serious and, and large question. I personally believe that farming is the nurturing of moments, right? The drip of dew that heals the parched landscape. We're in the middle of a drought here in central Virginia and the Piedmont eco region. And the dew, oh my gosh, we just, we dance when there's dew. We haven't received rain in months. 
Um, but that, 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 that's a moment, right? Farming, regenerative agriculture is about nurturing these moments. Um, but Fukuoka is claiming there's something more here, right, than just dew on a parched landscape. He says poetry is a unique art, for it achieves in a few words what entire volumes of literature achieves in many. Poems, they frame a simple moment with truth, beauty, and recognition without saying much at all. That, that is the healing power of poetry. And so Fukuoka is claiming we don't need more, you know, cover crops, no-till drills, polywire, cows, sheep. You don't need to do a leader, stalker, mobber, whatever, throw out all those words that all of us use. We, we don't need that. We need time for poetry. That is the foundation of regeneration. And so I think it would be a sin, a severe disregard to the complex uh, realities of what life is to not frame the next few moments that we're sharing together uh, with a poem. And my favorite poem by the ancient traditional Chinese poet, of the 17th century, Matso Basho, that's um, what this is, a frog in the pond. And uh, so I'll read it and we'll go through a little little moment here. I want, what I want to do is frame the rest of this conversation around this moment of the simple but complex realities of what life is, because that's what regeneration uh, deals with, and we're dealing with the philosophies of regeneration. But Basso's poem, or haiku, goes like this. An old silent pond. Into the pond, a frog jumps. Splash. Silence again. Every time I read this, I get chills. And, and maybe you're sitting there like, my God, that poem was mundane. Of course, poetry is the marvel, math, and the dailiness, and the mundane. There's no big words. There's simple words. A child could understand this. And that's exactly what a poem is. I'm going to read it again. An old silent pond. Into the pond, a frog jumps. Splash. Silence again. I, I bring up this poem to highlight Bachot's brilliance in, in that he highlights the pond by showing you a frog. Right? I can guarantee you that you saw the frog, but you're going to remember the pond. I've done this thought exercise with literally hundreds of people, and, and, and most all agree. They saw the frog, but when they walk away from this moment that we're framing, they remember the pond. They see the splash. They see the ripples parting and they go away subtly and silently. And then there's just stillness again. Silence. Anyway, so we don't, we don't know anything about the frog, but we know everything about the pond, right? He could have well written that into a pond, the frog jumps, right? The switching of a uh and the is the switching of everything. But this rendition, in my opinion, lacks place. It lacks the awareness of the pond's animacy. Ponds are only inanimate if water is inanimate, if motion is not living. And so I've said all of that to say this, kind of sounds like I'm mumbling, but I do have a purpose. In words more simple than a child's, Bashot defines the language of life in the simple framing of this pond's moment. The language of life in the simple framing of this pond's moment. To be a pond, or in other words, to be alive, is to be silent, swelling and still again, silent, swelling, and still again. It is to live cyclically, regeneratively. It is to be born, to grow, to live, to die, and to be born again. This is the moment that Basho is framing. He is framing the moment of life and understanding what are these regenerative cycles. Um, and it's showing us that we need the frog, right? Without the frog, we don't see the pond. Right, and, and we do need it. 
So moving on, change the slide if you can't see it, let me know. It should be a beautiful painting by George Catlin. Um, look into his art, it's beautiful. Uh, he lived with the Plains Indians for about a decade in the 1830s and, and painted hundreds of different paintings that he witnessed, which is beautiful. But anyways, as, as we tiptoe through these waters, no pun intended, I wanted to show you one last poem to set the stage of what is to come. The Ojibwe, who called themselves the Anishinaabe, um, a plain indigenous tribe, uh, have their own haiku that I want to share with you that I truly believe transitions well from Basso's pond to the depths of what is the philosophies of regenerative agriculture. And I'll read it to you in the same way that I read at the pond. The buffalo, they stand in a circle. I join with them. The buffalo, they stand in a circle. I join with them. The buffalo are sustenance because they are first a relationship. This, in the regenerative cycle, this is birth. They stand in a circle because strength can only be found in community. I believe that this is life, from birth to life. I join with them because I am them. The complex coagulation of life, right? All that is surrounding us, these complex realities, is contained within the transformative powers of being. Transformation. This is death in the regenerative cycle. And therefore, to harvest, we believe that we must first become. To harvest, we must first become. The buffalo, they stand in the circle. I join with them. This is harvesting. But it is only because we are that we can harvest. So life passes through death for rebirth. Life through death for rebirth. Yes, that is that is regeneration. Um, the, Anish the Anishinaabe, they, they knew this. To say it, to say it frankly. And, and I think it is about time that we learn to listen. To farm is to become, and it is nothing else. And therefore, it is hope. And so what I want to do in these next couple of slides is this, they're all going to be pictures from our farm, just simple, simple realities of the life that surrounds us. But I want to subtly and slowly, but succinctly, work through birth, life, death, and rebirth, trying to understand what are the philosophies at play here? What is going on? And what do we need to do to interact with it? to truly actually nurture, to be co-creative, energizing forces within the landscapes that surround us to actually achieve regeneration, long-standing, sustainable regeneration. And so birth, this is a picture of a sow in a forest. I just had a litter of these marvelous piglets. Um, I think the sow's named Liza. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think that's the truth. My wife and I, uh, we have three wonderful children. Uh, Eloin is the oldest. Her name means keeper of the forest. She's three. Tecumseh means panther in the sky. He's our, he's our second uh, child and only son. He's two. And Sequoia is the youngest. She's about eight months. Um, it, it's a busy house. Um, but I, I say these things to tell you that the birth is a miracle. I, I've had the supreme um, pleasure is the wrong word but uh, the, su the supreme ability to witness birth on three different occasions. And, and all I could say is it's powerful. Oh my goodness, is it powerful. The sacred feminine powers, right, of life as co-creators, moms, right, is overwhelming. For those of you who have witnessed birth and you're listening to this, you've witnessed the fullness of life itself. I, I truly believe this. Modern agriculture's push for commercialization and the commodification of the natural world has eradicated 
this miracle, life's miracle, and transformed it, in my humble and honest opinion, into something that is mechanized and reducible down to the smallest part, right? Most sows are laying at least two litters a year um, in cages, and it's just not a healthy process. There's nothing powerful and magical about it. This is linear reductionism. This is not holism. And so I want to briefly talk about our pigs uh, in the wildland. The wildland, we call it a wildland, and I guess now is the time to say it if there is a time at all. Um, a couple years ago, we were uh, quite depressed with the state of modern agriculture, even regenerative agriculture. Um, there's still a lot of control being put in these landscapes to, to produce a harvest. Um, I'm a historian by desire, and, and I've read, I've poured through many different early colonial histories and in letters and notes and journals and in and, and most all of them, you know, they're all different in their own context and they're different in their timelines and such, or they're Spanish or English or Chickasaw, it doesn't matter where they're coming from. When they journal that they have some similarities but and differences. But the main similarity is the indigenous peoples mocked, laughed at uh, European explorers um, uniformly. I mean, there was never one that I ever read that, that didn't. Uh, the idea that abundance surrounded them, that they killed themselves to cultivate abundance in little fields. And it's the idea of abundance being a thing that you co-create, not control. There's a huge difference there. And, and that's where the wildland is born. It's more of a rewilding, conservation, emergent, I should say, conservation landscape, less of a farm that also produces really great beef, really great pork and, and apples and everything else. We can talk more about that if it makes any sense later. But but our our, our pigs... Um, we believe that pigs have been kind of short, short-sticked, if you will, in the regenerative movement. Um, rotational grazing, which has kind of evolved into the understanding of holistic management and regenerative agriculture and mob grazing and adaptive mob grazing and adaptive plan grazing and all these terms that have arisen in different planning procedures or, or, or management procedures, if you will. They've all built or have been built off the paradigm that predators push prey animals naturally in nature. Right, herbivores, prey species have always mob grazed because the predators were all around them and safety is contained within the group of the herd, right? The relationship contained therein is a safety mechanism. Uh, but pigs are run in these same ways, but pigs aren't prey species. Talk to anybody who's been, you know, boar hunting versus, you know, cattle hunting or deer hunting or whatever it would be. It's a very different hunting experience. Pig, pigs are not prey species. In fact, most would consider them a predator, an omnivore. A true forager is more similar to a coyote than an apex predator, but coyotes are predators. Um, and so they're run in a particular way here at the wildland where they're given about a one square mile block. And inside that block, they're fenced. Yes, because we have neighbors that would kill us if they got into their flower beds, but they're fenced in a very large scale sense. And so they're free to roam and, and do a bunch of things that naturally pigs don't get to do in, in a farm landscape. But I bring this up to say inside the idea or the context of birth, recently all of our pigs have started to farrow. This is nothing that we control. The boar has been in there for the last three years. It's just now they decided to farrow all in the unison. It's the idea of relationship and community within the acting of a herd or a sounder or whatever you call a group of pigs. And, uh, and every now and again, we'll just lose a sow or a sow will go off in the distance and we'll never see her for maybe two or three weeks. And then they'll reemerge one morning when we're out there giving them some feed, just checking in on them on the fence lines. And there'll be 10 to 14 or whatever piglets running behind her. It's like a chicken that goes off into the woods, lays its chicks and comes back. That's what our pigs do. 
and, uh, and, and we absolutely love it in the sense that these sows and these piglets are able to actually go off like they would in the wild, lay a litter, right, to farrow in the wild in some sense. And yeah, you know, they're open. They're not protected. They're not a barn and they're definitely not in a cage. Um, but the mothering instincts of these sows is something that is an emergent property that I never could have designed. And I don't think I ever could have designed it. And I designed a lot of landscapes professionally. Um, and I never would have seen this coming up, an idea of what emergence is. But it's birth. It's the sanctity of life. And we must start there. But we also must progress from there to life, which is this next slide. Birth to life is an explosion of the senses. That's how we always talk about it when we give courses. It, 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 it's an explosion of the senses when the enigmatic uh, expressions of emergence, there's three E's for you, the enigmatic expressions of emergence make themselves known and palatable. Right. That is what we believe life to be. But here I want to put a little note of caution. Right. And, uh, and this is what an entire chapter of the book, Wildlife Flowers, um, you know, is dedicated to. It, it, it's a moment of caution here, understanding life and our place within the cycle of, of, of the regenerative uh, cycle of life. 1920s right, saw an explosion of modern agricultural life in the beginnings of the industrial complex. I think this is true. But it was focused on speed and efficiency, reigned uh, prominently, and the idea was to produce more corn more quickly on less land. More corn more quickly on less land. Yes, sometimes it was a different crop, but ideally here in this conversation, simplifying it down, more corn, um, more corn more quickly on less land was the phrase. Today it's 2020, 2021, but about 100 years later. And I question here, and I want to take a moment here to question if we are any different. Today, we push to sequester more carbon, not corn, carbon, more quickly on less land, right? We have transitioned from bushels of corn per acre to tonnage of carbon per acre. 1920, it was corn. 2020, it's carbon. What has changed? I'm not saying carbon sequestration is a bad thing. Not at all. I don't think it's negative in any sense. Corn is not a bad thing. It's the understanding of the word Timshul, thou mayest. We have the power to take what is, to transform it into the hope of tomorrow, and we have the power to take what is and degrade it into the, to the uh, um, negative resultant of, of, of tomorrow, or maybe the lack of tomorrow. But they, we have that power, corn, carbon, just aspects within the greater whole. How we use these aspects is, is the thing of caution. Um, Life, in my opinion, is the equal expression of emergence. And although carbon is one aspect of that system, the system is much larger than carbon. I think anybody who spends any time, uh, you know, with Mark Shepard or anybody I've heard them all talk about it, they focus here, right? Carbon is important, but it's not the end goal, right? Improving the water cycle, not to get too deep into actual regenerative practice and soil, soil health understanding, the water cycle is of a higher importance. Carbon is a tangent reality of an appropriate water cycle. But we focus on corn like we focused on carbon, or like we focused on carbon like we focused on corn. I'm getting my C's mixed up. But anyways, the idea is this. Life requires holistic thinking. And holistic systems based upon that pattern and understanding. Here we see the word perma, the permaculture coming out through me. I'm saying the word pattern. I got Jeff Lawton in my head. Pattern. That's how he always said it. But life requires holistic thinking and pattern understanding. Holistic systems, uh, they cannot be broken down into individual parts. And, and, and so when we look at life, right, because that's what we're talking about here, and we're talking about it as a regenerative philosophical idea of what life is within this cycle, 
birth, life, death, rebirth. We have to understand that life can't be broken down. Life operates in holes. It is holistic in that sense. Uh, one way to think about it is aspects versus parts, right? A carburetor outside of an engine is still a carburetor. It doesn't mean a carburetor as a name, as an idea, as a part, right, within a system doesn't imply action. And it doesn't imply a lack of action. It just implies what it is. It's a carburetor. But take a cow out of a pasture or a grassland, and what is it? It's dead. It doesn't have being anymore, right? The different cows are aspects. They're interconnected and interdependent holes within many holes. That is holistic. That is holistic thinking. Carburetors are not their parts. I'm not saying a carburetor is better or worse than a cow, but the, the idea is they're different. And we have to treat them different. Complicated, right, and, and, and hard systems is a carburetor. Complex and soft systems is, is the cow. And so when we stand back and we're looking at life, the idea here is we, we need to question, right, where is the decaying timber? I'm looking at timber here in this picture, right? Where is the decaying timber on the biologically rich forest floor? Right, timber, right, is harvested. But what about the timber left? Right, we take, but what do we give? This is something very important to consider. Right, and there's many questions here, but another one that comes to me is where are the mixed grasslands? Right, full of diversity and native species that literally rain feet above our heads that were talked about hundreds of years ago. Right, we till and level them, right, to level, um, level the, the, the harvestable, um, product right, that we can get out of them. Anyways, big questions, don't need to spend time on, on that. Um, but the idea is control. I, I think that's what I'm trying to push here. Control is the issue, I believe, between a life well-lived and a life that struggles to live, right? Life in its full expression is emergent, and it is wild. In other words, we need to let the weeds in. This is something that, you know, is a tangent maybe conversation to have, um, but enough of a cursory view Moving forward real quick, this is a, a kind of crazy picture to me. It's a hard picture. Uh, it's death, right? Life passes through death for rebirth. Um, I, I truly believe that we don't focus on death because it's uncontrollable and we like control. The modern agricultural complex through the industrial complex to capitalization and uh, commodification is thrown out a bunch of C words for you. But the point is it's all based in control. That's the idea. And we can't control death. In fact, it probably is the only thing in this entire world that we can't control. And it petrifies us. Um, th this picture I took it this morning in, in preparation for this webinar. Um, in, in the wildland, we have a philosophy. It's more of a tenant uh, that whenever an animal dies in the field or the forest or the civil pasture, whatever it is, wherever an animal dies, it stays. We harvest animals, it's true, but if they die naturally in a pasture, we leave them in the pasture. They decided to die there, and who the hell am I to decide that they should move elsewhere after they die? Uh, it, it's part of the understanding that life is a co-creative force, that this cow is not something that I created. I didn't create it. I managed it. It's an entirely different, different concept. The grasses, the soils, the, bac the bacteria, the microbes, the predators, the black bears, the mountain lions, the coyotes, the hawks, the bald eagle, I mean, all of these holes right, are contained within the whole and are connected to the whole that is that cow's life. And so as we sit here looking at this picture of the hip bone and a femur, um, you know, this, this cow was named Suri. She was a marvelous cow. She died of old age in the pasture. And uh, we were moving through this area this morning, moving the, the big herd. And we passed it. And I just 
kind of broke down a little bit, right? This is Sari. She's still here. She is taking life, passing it through death for rebirth. I don't know what that rebirth is, which is why it petrifies us. That's why we don't talk about it. Because just as much as we can control death, we can't control. We can't, um, I want to say colonize, but I don't think it's going to work. We can't control what is born out of this life to death process, right? Which is what we, what rebirth is. And so, and that, and that's the last slide. That's the understanding that life passes through death for rebirth. Um, death is not the end. It is a transformative force that consumes yesterday's life to produce or to co-create tomorrow's abundance. This is regenerative agriculture. Um, you see, I, I, I don't think if we have an issue today, it's how we think. I don't think so. I think I, uh, I think that thought is, is not the remedy to solving today's issues, which I think is a very different opinion than most people have. I think we do too much thinking, and I think that is the source of today's problem. The key to restoring Eden, if I can use that terminology, to regenerating relationship and community and the naturally abundant processes uh, inherent in her gifts, I think the key is to stop talking. Stop thinking, stop doing, and, and start being, right? I said in the very beginning of this, right, that the Matsoba shows the pond haiku shows us that being is life. To be is to be alive. Um, and I think that that is, a, that is the way that regenerative agriculture needs to go. I think is what the philosophy of regenerative agriculture is built on. is the state of being to harvest. We must become, thinking of the Ojibwe or the Anishinaabe poem of the buffalo is a haiku. Um, Last little note here that I think is is important. Um, nothing is lost that is given. I think that's an important note to make. To be is to be the gift of life itself, right? Regenerative agriculture is about gifts and about being, and it is really not about anything else. It is the hope that comes out of that relationship, that community. Um, all of these thoughts are in my book, Wild Like Flowers. Uh, I'm a much better writer than speaker, but I think I do an adequate job speaking. But if you're interested in this, Obviously, the book does a much better job at it. But um, Wayne, I'll, I'll terminate the slideshow, and then you just direct it from here. I got all the time if you have it, and uh, sure. you're the boss. Yeah, let's we'll move on here. Um, we're in a big drought out here in the West, also, as you've probably heard, and um, so the, the the water side of life is very uh, very vivid for uh, for many of us now. That was really excellent, really good. Um, we are we are past the top of the hour. I want to give our our audience a chance to ask questions. You guys have been very quiet, so please think of some things. I'm going to ask just a couple of other things, and then we're probably going to uh, maybe I wish we wouldn't, but uh, take an end to this, and we'll see if we can convince Daniel to come on another time with us. Um, as you've uh, as you've gotten to the point you're at now in your regenerative farming career are you profitable are you able to make a living from mm. the farming it's a good question uh in full transparency no um we have decided in the last three years to pour all the profits back into um really like de climate change ising the farm right so we're building a lot of ponds we built you know five ponds last year um, planting a lot of trees, uh, buying a lot of the land around us uh, to stop it from being deforested, et cetera. And so in, in that sense, no, we're not making a living off the farm. We, we do have profit. 
um, you know, that that's very important to us. We just pour it back. Um, our, our consulting and teaching work has really taken over, right? This is a holistic system, and it's important to make that note. Um, we are able to take the farmed profits and pour them back into the farm uh, be, because we spend a lot of time teaching and consulting and training. And, and, and um, you know, we're, we're rolling out EOV, ecological outcome verification, via the Savory Institute's uh, land monitoring protocol and the land to market program and traveling all over the mid-Atlantic doing that work. And so we do we do a lot of work off the farm to support the farm. I guess you could say it that way. But it's only because we truly believe like right now we, we've got about two, two and a half inches of rain this entire summer. And uh, we live in a very non-brittle, historically non-brittle landscape. And uh, so our ecology has gone from, you know, 40 to 8 to 68 inches of rain a year to 10, 15. And so there's a shock happening. And uh, we have wells drying up. We have rivers and streams drying up. And so we're utilizing these ponds built out of the profit of the enterprise uh, to water all of our livestock currently. And, and so we're able to form resilient systems via the profit, which is, in my opinion, what profit is, right? It's resilience, whether or not it's in your back pocket, the bank account, or in a pond. Um, but uh, it's, uh, no, it, it's hard still. I mean, it's small smallholder farming which I don't know if this is what you're getting at. It, it's difficult. Um, yeah. I've been quoted to say that we need a lot more smaller farms. We don't need a lot more bigger farms. I, I, I believe that it's true. But smaller smaller farms is hard. Just farming in general is hard. But uh, when your total net gross income is 50 grand because you only have, you know, 50 acres or 10 acres, whatever. I mean, you have to maximize, right? And it takes a lot of time. And it's, uh, it's a hard it's world. Been, it's really only been since the Industrial Revolution, the last, hundred years that and even maybe right at about a hundred years post World War One, where any farming at any level was the entire revenue stream of the farmer. Farmers prior right. to that always did other things. They were school teachers, they were writers, they were um, they had a, a sawmill, they had a whole variety of other things. And reality is they way more um, definitively understood how vital it was to to keep the land regenerating because they uh, they just relied on it where again we, we went into this industrial farming era and are still in it unfortunately and that's not any of the goals at all but this water issue is going to be changing farming um, uh, in a catastrophic way for many of the big, large farmers, right. but in a very positive way for for those of us who believe we have to be in a regenerative mode. And, uh, and that's the land is the most important. That's a very cool picture, by the way, with you and the you and the cow there. Um, I'm just going to look real quick. I still don't see any other questions. Usually, that just means people are engaged. I don't. I don't blame people. For that. Or, or they think I'm nuts, which is also fine. No, no, I'm, I'm good with nuts. I really doubt that, or they wouldn't be here. But I think we are. We have gone over. I'm going to try to maybe wrap it. Um, if you don't mind, um, Daniel, I'm going to call shortly after this, and, and we'll we'll talk about things that we probably mutually um, have as passions and such. And, Maybe talk about seeing if you if you can come back again because I know that our audience would love that. Um, so, 
everybody, this has been awesome. It, it's uh, two hours later where Daniel is. And we're, we're here in the, the middle of our really gorgeous evening. We've been very hot for the last week and uh, close to 100 every day. And today it maybe got to 80, which is very unusually nice. And I still have some farming to do to end up my day. <laughs> so I'm going to do a little bit, a little bit more of that. And it's my wife's birthday today. So we're going to have a, a nice little uh, birthday dinner celebration. And Daniel, what you're doing is so amazing. Um, you know, please uh, give our love to your family, to your, your, your wife in particular, which I know is she's an important part of everything you do. Your kids aren't old enough to totally understand that yet, but they will. Um, and not, and not right, so right. So, and they will understand how blessed of an activity it is that their parents are doing. So uh, you just keep it up. And anything we can do to help you, everybody go out there and, and look at the book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be putting it on my list and getting it from Amazon here in the, the very near future. Um, and there's the, there it is. Um, the website, um, there's a couple of them that Mark was showing us. I'm sure you can get in touch with Daniel that way. And let's just go out and, and uh, continue to make this place a place of birth and then ultimately rebirth, even though we may not understand what that rebirth is. So, right. There's an old, I, I think right, it's got a, right. little, a little bit of a spiritual background. And, and one of the things that I talk about a lot from that perspective, and it's not very often described in, in most um biblical context, which is the renewal of all things. Um, and right. Christ talks about that. The Old Testament um, scholars talk about it. But I don't think we focus on it very much. And maybe that renewal is, is what is the rebirth. Uh, maybe it's, it's what, what is in another life. But I think it's taught pretty well that it's also something that is a, 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 an attitude we have to have in this life and that we need to Think about everything we do becoming a renewal of all things. And, uh, That's right. That's you know. right. Yeah, I, I I completely agree, and I'm sure we can have another hour conversation about that alone. Um, but I, I think it's what's overlooked. I, I always say this, and maybe this is a fine way to end it. Um, you know, everybody talks about predators pushing prey animals forward, and it's the wake of you know, in their in their wake is just soil and healthy grasslands and such. And I, and I think that's true. I don't think anything that is built, the regenerative movement or the grass-fed local foods movement is wrong. I, I think we're missing one thing, though, right? If predators are pushing prey animals forward, the, 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 the wake, the, the, the reality, the product of the predator-prey relationship is a bunch of death transforming into rebirth behind them, right? That, 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 that's, that's the product. Soil health is a byproduct, right? It, it's what comes out of that rebirth process. And, and so death, death and rebirth are, are something that we entirely need. And I, and I think we have to start taking not ownership, but co-creative responsibility of it. I, I think that is the difference that we need to walk into as we progress into this new era of drought and severe climate change and, and rural economic degradation, et cetera. It's the understanding of, of, of what this last little bit of this webinar is about. That, that is a really good place for us to stop to be thinking about and then to move forward again daniel thank you so much mark as always thank you man um thanks for taking a, a little bit away from your holiday and uh we enjoy thanks, it. Mark. talking with abby again soon and boy you gave her a great introduction also and everybody you go out and just tune have a in wonderful day.
Check us out, Mark. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.